we come to the word of the Lord, I invite you to begin by turning into 2 Thessalonians 2, and uh, we'll get there in just a couple of minutes, but it's certainly a privilege to have these four Sundays uh, with you, and the subject matter is what does the future hold, biblical prophecy in the last days. Now, last Sunday we looked at that uh, triumphant event uh, that we know called the rapture of the church when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and takes his church, born-again believers, out of this world. Uh, so that's called the rapture of the church. That's the next event on the prophetic scene. This morning I want to look with you at a subject I'm calling the backbone of spiritual uh, biblical prophecy, but in particular I'm narrowing that down to the day of the Lord. I would dare say... 99%, perhaps 100, have never heard a message entitled the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is not the Lord's day. Don't get the two confused. The day of the Lord is not the day of Christ. Don't get it confused. It's a very particular time that the Bible talks about called the day of the Lord, and that will be our focus this morning. And then next uh, Sunday, Lord one, we'll look at the coming Islamic invasion of Israel, and then on the fourth Sunday, we're going to look at Armageddon, Jerusalem, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these words and think in your own mind who you think may have spoken these words. The streets of our country are in turmoil. The universities are filled with students rebelling and rioting. Communists are seeking to destroy our country, and the republic is in danger. Yes, there is danger from within and from without. We need law and order. Without law and order, our nation cannot survive. Now, I dare say some of you might have different names that you might think said that even recently. But the words I'm speaking that I quoted tried to word for word were actually spoken back in 1932 by Adolf Hitler. Now some say, some say he spoke those exact words, others said it was used for propaganda. But the point is this, that dictators rarely take over nations by brute force. Now, I said rarely, sometimes they do, but most of the time it's not by brute force. Almost always political, and or economic problems pave the way for tyranny. Even when Paul wrote the letters that we're looking at today, especially 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, they were under the Roman Empire. And I'm told when the Roman Empire first started taking over countries, the conquered people felt somewhat indebted to Rome for the law in order which it provided. Our justice system really has its foundation in the Roman Empire, as most of you know. The smaller countries conquered, in particular, were grateful for the newfound stability, which replaced their once shaky political structures. And then what happened through the process of time, the people became so enthusiastic about the Roman Empire, they started worshiping it in place of God. In fact, you may know that Caesar was then declared Lord. 
And the greatest challenge to the early church in the Roman Empire is that they were commanded to say, not Jesus is Lord, but Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't, then obviously they were persecuted, tortured, even put to death. And so what you see happening back there with Caesar worship is a little bit of something what we might see, uh, what this world might see in uh, the future. The people wanted something to unify the various cultures, the languages, and the religions into one. And Caesar provided that in the days of the apostles. Now, all this is an introduction to the sermon title, The Day of the Lord. When it speaks of a future world dictator who first appears on the scene, not as a tyrant, but as a man of peace. Dare I say, the prince of peace. And he unifies the world under one system, and it eventuates in the demand, what? That people worship this person, this so-called prince of peace, as God. Now, we're going to pick it up, if you have a Bible, in 2 Corinthians 2. And if you don't, it will be on the screen in front of you. Let me read the first 12 verses. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Did you ever hear the word disinformation? Of course you have. There's disinformation right there. So somebody said, either by a demonic spirit or by a, a spoken word, or even a forged letter with the Apostle Paul's signature, you're suffering tribulation today because you are in the day of the Lord. Disinformation. He says, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, what day, Paul? The day of the Lord that he's talking about. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And notice these encouraging words. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? I was with him only three Sabbaths. And I'm encouraged to know in those three Sabbaths, he thought prophetic events were important enough to teach these brand new Christians these truths. Why didn't you listen up? I told you this was going to happen. And now you here you are falling for the disinformation. And, verse 6, you know what is restraining him now. Don't have time to talk about that. Who's the restrainer? The Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit restraining evil today through the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus? Think of the influence Christians have in our country and around the world on restraining evil. Now imagine when that is taken out of the world through the rapture 
and there is no restraining force behind. All hell will break loose. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do it so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Sends who a strong delusion? Those who refuse to be saved. Who's that? It's the person sitting in that chair at Austinville Baptist Church this morning who has heard the gospel time and time again, but you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and then the rapture happens tomorrow, and then you're left behind, and you would think that a person left in that condition would say, oh, why didn't I do that? I'm going to receive Jesus now. You know, you won't. If you fully understood and you rejected, Paul says that you're going to be deluded by the power of the Antichrist who's working according to satanic, demonic power. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Not a pleasant subject to study or to preach about. Not a pleasant subject to sit there and listen to but it's part of the whole counsel of God, and that's why we preach it. So let's understand something about this day of the Lord. First of all, the definition. How do we define the day of the Lord? Now, there are different thoughts about the day of the Lord, but I think when you put all the Old Testament and all the New Testament verses together, while it has an emphasis, it does include the time from the rapture of the church, the church taken out, and then once the church is taken out of the world. That day of the Lord begins with the beginning of the tribulation period. And the emphasis on the day of the Lord is that seven year. We'll get in that minute of the tribulation period. But then in some verses, very few, it includes the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the righteous millennial kingdom. So it goes really from the time after the rapture through the end of the millennium, a thousand and seven years in round figures. Okay, But the emphasis is upon this seven-year period of time. The day of the Lord is found 21 times in the Bible, and I've mulled over those verses for the last few months. Jason DeRoshi, an Old Testament research professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, he defines the day of the Lord this way. The phrase, the day of the Lord, refers both to the ultimate time when God will punish and restore the whole world through Christ's first and second comings. Unrepentant sinners should fear the day of the Lord, but those forgiven and redeemed can anticipate it with hope. So while the judgment and the wrath of God is the focal point of the day of the Lord, it will also be include a time of salvation, as God will save the remnant of Israel, by the way, two-thirds of whom are killed in the tribulation period, but the God will save the remnant of Israel, fulfilling his covenant promises concerning the forgiveness of sins, that's the new covenant, and the restoration of the land of Israel to the Jewish people, and then the Davidic throne restored, which will be the throne of David, uh, where the king reigns there 
upon the earth. So that's the definition of it. Let's look at the description. What are the characteristics? If, if you were to go through the day of the Lord, what should you expect the world around you to look like? Now, that day is another reference sometimes to it, or the great day, and there are 75 additional occurrences to the 21 that specify the day of the Lord. So these passages emphasize that the concept of judgment, the concept of the wrath of God is paramount. If the rapture was typified by triumph, by celebration, by evacuation, then the day of the Lord is called the terrible day of the Lord, marked by great tribulation. Most all the Old Testament and New Testament verses have the tribulation period in mind when you talk about the day of the Lord. We don't have time to look at all the verses, but I've got three for us to look at. Isaiah 13, 6-9. Wait, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be on anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath, fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Joel says, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. <coughs> he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Zephaniah summarizes as well as anybody. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distrust and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I said it last week, the world in which we live is upside down. You look around and it is what God never intended it to be from the original creation. But after the day of the Lord, everything will be turned upside right. God's going to make things the way that he intends. Now, let's look thirdly at the duration. We've seen the definition, the description, and let's look at the duration. If you'd ask most Christians who believe in the plain sense of language structure in interpreting the Bible, the answer is pretty clear. It's seven years long. What did I mean by that? because there's people that don't believe in the plain sense of language structure. There is what is called a biblical hermeneutic, principles for how you interpret the Bible. 
And if I could put it just in layman's terms of a very simple thing, if the plain sense makes common sense, don't make it any other sense. Huh? You say, well, that's pretty simple. That's because I'm a simple-minded man. I'm not too bright, okay? If the plain sense makes common sense, don't make it any other sense. In other words, we believe in the historical, grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. If God said it, that settles it. It's, it's as simple as that. We don't look in contrast to that for an allegorical meaning. We don't look for a figurative meaning. What God said there in his word, don't look for something hidden. He's not trying to hide it from you. He's trying to make everyone aware of what that day is going to be, and you don't want to be part of it. And you could be part of it. And your friends, and your family, and your sons, and your grandchildren and your parents, and your neighbors, and your co-workers. You don't want to be part of that day. How long will it last? Well, seven years long, as we understand it. Well, why seven years? Well, we've got to go back 2,500 years when the prophet Daniel reveals the answer to that question. It's not the easiest to understand. It won't tickle your ears this morning. But you got to stay with me. you got to stay with me. This is the kind of question that's better handled in a classroom where you can ask question and answer and go back and forth. We do, can't. If you think I'm going to ask, are there any questions, you're crazy. Okay? <laughs> it's not going to happen this morning, trust me. So we're not in that situation. Here's the bear of basics. Let me just read, open your scriptures if you have them, back to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. So in the Old Testament, you got those 12 minor prophets at the end, and right before Hosea, the first of the 12 minor prophets, you got the book of Daniel. It'll be up on the screen as well. So here's the prophecy that Daniel gives uh, from the Lord. Now notice that the whole prophecy has to do kind of with verse 1, so pay attention. Seventy weeks are determined, here we go, Daniel, for your people and for your holy city. Now I'm going to do six things at the end. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, here's where it begins, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks. He's going to break 70 weeks down now. Stay with me. Seven weeks, 69 weeks, uh, 60, uh, uh, two weeks, and then one week. So you take the seven, and the 62 is 69, and that leaves one week, the 70th week of Daniel. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall. So the 62 and the 7 make 69 out of the 70, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks with the 7 weeks before them, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he, who's he? We'll see in a minute. Then he shall... Confirm a covenant. He's going to make a promise, a covenant, with many for, there's the 70th week, one week. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years later, 
He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, the abomination of desolation. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, I'm sure that doesn't exactly excite all of you having read that, but you need to understand that this is the backbone of biblical prophecy. What I want us to see are a few things. I'm going to give you ten. And hopefully as you look at this chart, we're going to keep it up there. As you look at this chart, you'll see how it kind of flows together. So we start, first of all, with, with verse 24, that the entire prophecy has to do, notice, with two things, your people and your holy city. Now, don't have to be a rocket scientist to know who your people are when he's talking to the prophet Daniel, right? He's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. That's your people. Well, on your people and your holy city, that can be nothing but Jerusalem. So Daniel's people were the Jews and the holy city is Jerusalem. And almost all Bible commentators agree that the, the 70 weeks should be understood as weeks of years, not weeks of days. So if there are weeks of years, one week equal seven years, then 70 years times seven is 490. So that's where you get your your uh, division of the weeks broken up for you. Now, don't let that confuse you. So if I asked you today, how long is a week? Most of you would say to me, well, a week is seven days. You know why you say that? Because you're an American. But if you were an Israeli and you were asked back in this time, how long is a week? They would say, it depends what you're talking about. It could be a week of days, seven days, or it could be a week of years. Now, so they speak of weeks of years. We speak, and similar, we speak not just years, but we speak of a decade of years, right? So if I say, well, it's the decade of the 60s, that means it's the 10 years of the 1960s. They spoke in terms of weeks of the years uh, as well. Now, there's a sixfold purpose in verse 24. The first three have to do with sin. The second three have to do uh, with God's purpose and the righteousness and the establishment of the kingdom. So get this. The purpose of the tribulation period, here we go, is a preparatory purging process. Three words, three Ps. Got a class? Say it with me. Preparatory purging process. You didn't get it. Say it again. Preparatory purging process. That's the purpose of the tribulation period primarily, to prepare Israel to recognize her Messiah, whom they rejected and crucified at his first coming. Number two, it's a day of populating the millennium with a multitude of saved Gentiles. And then number three, to pour out judgment on unbelieving man and nations. Second thing to know. Two princes are mentioned in verses 25 and 26, so do not confuse them. Messiah the prince, and then you have the prince that shall come, verse 25, 26. Number three, the entire time period covers 70 weeks, divided, as we said, into three lesser periods, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. 69 weeks now, what we would say, are 483 years, have already been fulfilled. They're in history. They're behind us. But one week, the 70th week, remains. That hasn't been fulfilled. And we'll show you how we know that. 
Number four, a week in the Hebrew context, as we said, can mean seven days or seven years. Remember, Jacob was told by Laban that if he wanted Rachel's wife, he had to work for her. Do you remember how long? Seven years. And then Laban says this to Jacob. Listen, fulfill her week. He knew what that meant. It meant seven years. So that's how we know one of the ways the week can be used. Number five, we're not left to question, but the beginning of the 70 weeks is definitely fixed at the going forth of a commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, there were four edicts given by Gentile leaders, empires, uh, back in the Old Testament. This is the only, there's only one of them that fits this description here of the going forth to, uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's found in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. No question about it. When was that? That was in 445 B.C. We know that for a fact. That's not up for debate. So, that begins then the, 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 the 70 weeks of Daniel. The end of the 69 weeks, 7 plus 62 in verse 26, is marked by the event when, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So there's a prince, a Messiah, and an anointed one coming, but then he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. Now, after Messiah is cut off, he says, seventhly, the people, and here's it gets a little confused, stay with me. The people of the prince, that's the second prince. First prince, Messiah, Jesus. Second prince, false prince. Okay? We will call him and see more later, the Antichrist. The people of the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, we know who did it and we know when they did it. It was the Roman Empire. You say, well, when was it? 70 AD. You can read any history books and find that. Now he says the ruler or the prince who will come as a reference to the Antichrist will have some connection then with the former Roman Empire since it was the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So that he's the ruler of who will come is a reference to that Antichrist, the ruler of the people who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So all we do is take a, a, an ancient map and look at the Roman Empire, and then we put the modern countries today and look at it today should the Lord return, and we see that it's part of what you and I would call the United States of Europe. And more specifically, Revelation and Daniel will talk elsewhere about a 10-nation confederation from the United States of Europe as it is today who will be under the power of Satan, who then delegates his power and his miracle-working authority and demonic power uh, to this person who's the, who's the false prince, the false messiah, the Antichrist. Now, there's clearly a gap between the 69th and 70 week, which is the church age. But they didn't know that in the Old Testament. You know why, if you were paying attention last week. It's because the church was a mystery. What's a mystery? Something previously concealed, not revealed. You'll never see the church or the rapture of the church in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. 
So you have this gap, and that's caused a lot of confusion with the Jewish people, to say the least. But then after the rapture of the church, which is also called a mystery, this prince then becomes the peacemaker in the Middle East. And what's he do? What Daniel said he would do. He confirms the covenant with the Jewish people for one week. How long's a week? Seven years. So that's the 70th week of Daniel. So he comes as a prince of peace, and he's identified by the apostle John through his writings as the Antichrist. Now keep in word, the Greek word anti has a twofold meaning. It can be used one way in place of. It's used that way when it says Christ died anti for our sins. He died in place of our sins. But there's a second meaning which also means against. You're anti something means you're against whatever you're anti against. The Antichrist brings both of those together because he first appears on the scene as the Prince of Peace and he is putting himself in the place of Christ. He's the Prince. He's the Messiah. All the world worship me because Satan is delegated. Listen, Satan often operates in the realm of the counterfeit. Would you agree? And you have a counterfeit trinity. You have the dragon who is Satan, who corresponds to God the Father. You have the Antichrist, who corresponds to Jesus Christ. You have the, the second beast called the false prophet, who corresponds to the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ and points all of us to Christ. What does the false prophet do? He points everyone to the Antichrist. You see an exact counterfeit going on, and we shouldn't be... Surprised about that. But in the middle of the 70th week, after he finally is the answer, all of you adults know since 1948, we've been uh, looking for the solution to the Middle East crisis. Kiss Henry Kissinger, Bill Clinton. I mean, name any president, secretary of state. They've all tried to bring a, a lasting peace accord to the Middle East, and nothing works. Now the Antichrist comes on the scene. And he comes as the Prince of Peace. And what's he do? He signs a peace covenant with Israel. And he says, I'm going to provide protection with you. Now, this Antichrist, as we said 10 minutes ago, comes out of a 10-nation confederation of the United States of Europe. And so he becomes the military power. He becomes the, the essence of power at that time. You say, well, where's the United States? Brother, she's gone. And she's gone because she's gone once the rapture happens and every Christian's taken out of America. Are you kidding me? What in the world is left, right? Satan's going to have his heyday. And so the Antichrist comes there and he makes this promise. I'm going to give you peace. And now all of a sudden they're building a temple. And I'm, I'm, I'm surmising here. But because in the middle of the week, he turns against Israel. He breaks the covenant. He forbids them to offer any more of the sacrifices in the temple. And he sets his image up in the temple, demanding that Israel worship him. And then that will extend to the whole world. And unless you receive the mark of the beast, 666, you will be done away with. But in Israel, now he turns on them after three and a half years. He sets himself up in the temple saying that he is God. And that's what is called the abomination of desolation. 
tuck that baby away in your head. Daniel predicts in verse 27, the Antichrist will face judgment. He'll only rule until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. God will allow evil to go so far, and then the patience is exhausted. And Antichrist will face his doom. We read about it, the second coming, Revelation uh, 19.20 and Revelation 20.10 at Christ's second coming. What does he do? He takes the Antichrist and he takes the false prophet and this loving Powerful, omnipotent Savior throws both of them into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur for eternity. That's at the breath of his mouth. He speaks, and it is done. Now that you're totally with me and understand everything I've said, I'm going to bore you with this next chart that's supposed to help you understand it. I did get a lot of comments after the first service, and like people at Austria, most of you are very kind uh, with your comments. <coughs> and then one veteran Christian here, I won't mention Bob's name, but <laughs> I always love having Bob around because as long as he's around, I know somebody's here older than I am. So that's a good thing. So he comes up to me by the side, and I have to laugh at this. He says, well, Harry, he says, that was great. Thanks a lot for clearing everything up for me. And that was his comment. So I think it was tongue-in-cheek. Now, I'm going to do my best to clear up a little bit right here. <coughs> so on this chart, now what we're taking out of the former chart is we're taking just that 70th week, seven years, okay? 69 are done, so we don't have to look at that. Now we're going to see how this 69th week appears in the scheme of prophecy and why I call it the backbone of biblical prophecy. When Israel rejected her king, and Daniel put it in these words, Messiah will be cut off. I want you to imagine a clock up there on the left side of the screen. And the time clock of prophecy that had been ticking off uh, for 483 years, it stopped. And then at that crucifixion of Messiah, we have no king but Caesar. We reject him. We crucified Jesus. The time clock of prophecy stopped. Now, six months before the cross of Christ or the cutting off of Messiah, Jesus made a prophecy. And that's where you heard the word church for the first time in Matthew 16. I will, Israel's rejected him. They said, you're, you're indwelt by Satan. You're a prophet of Beelzebub. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the Holy Spirit came and the church was formed, uh, began being formed on the day of Pentecost. That was her birthday, Acts chapter 2. And for all this time now, 2,000 years, the church has been growing. Now, just put yourself back here at about Daniel's time, let's just say 500 B.C. And you're with all the other prophets. And whether it's Isaiah 700, whether it's Malachi 400, uh, whether it's Moses 1500 B.C., they're all looking down the corridor of time in prophecy. And what they see, I want you to imagine this, are two big mountaintops. You got them in your mind? Two big mountaintops. And you're standing back here, and you're looking at those two mountaintops, and all you can see are the two mountaintops uh, at the top. What you can't see is what? The valley in between. And that's precisely what the church age is. Now, how do I know this? Because you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read very quickly 1 Peter chapter 1, just a verse for you, to get the idea of what was such a problem. 
He says, concerning this salvation that we, the church, have experienced, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, that's the first coming, that's the Lamb of God, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, there's the Lamb of God, that's the first coming, that's Messiah being cut off, and the subsequent glories. That's not the lamb, that's the lion out of the tribe of Judah. That's the second coming. And what they saw were these two mountaintop prophecies, first coming, second coming, and they couldn't fit the two together. And who could fit them together? Because they were demonstrated at two different periods of time, Christ's first coming and uh, Christ's second coming. And so for the last 2,000 years then, the church has been the instrument through which God has been revealing himself. Now, the next event we said last week on the prophetic scene is the rapture of the church, also called the mystery. That's the coming together. Um, uh, and, and now the first coming has been completed. And now we wait for the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, let me just go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 with you for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll try to wrap it up uh, for you. 2 Thessalonians 2, where we began. Now, this chart on the man of sin might help you because... Uh, this is what he does. This is the 70th week of Daniel. That's that seven-year tribulation period. So I've got three little pictures up here I put. A handshake, the temple, a holiest of holies in uh, Jerusalem, and then fire brimstone judgment on the right. So he comes on the scene at the beginning of the seventh week. He shakes his hand. We can see it on the screen. It's all over. Fox News, CNN, ABC, all the networks have it. And a peace has been promised. He's a man of peace. He's a prince of peace. Don't you understand that? And so the first three and a half years is relatively a piece of protection and peace for the nation of Israel. Finally, they don't have to worry about the walls and someone coming to attack them. But in the middle of the week, he goes into the holiest of holies and does something that a predecessor did, Antiochus Epiphanes, a few hundred years before. He sets himself up in the temple and he demands that all Israel worship him. That's called the abomination of desolation. And now all hell breaks out. And for the second three and a half years, it's not protection. It's absolute persecution. Because the Antichrist opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or war, uh, uh, object of war. So he takes his seat in the temple of God and he proclaims himself to be God. Now, if that's not enough for you, and you got Paul talking about this, this coming man of perdition, the man of lawlessness. You have John calling him the Antichrist. Daniel calls him the counterfeit prince. And all this comes together because Satan now gives to this Antichrist all of his power and authority. Notice what he, what he said there. He, so you have all the demon-possessed leaders, false prophets, false teachers, false Christ, and a world filled with de demonic spirits. And all that power now is given to the Antichrist. He's actually able to do miracles, and that astounds the world. The book of Revelation even presents him as having received, uh, gone through death and having died. Although the language is not exact there, could be it was a feigned death, we don't know. But he's raised then from the dead as the world looks at him. He's a person who died, but he came back to life. And that's all the power. You see all the counterfeit taking place? And that's what's happening here. Now, if you just turn over to one other place, it's Matthew 24. 
because this is a pivotal point. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is just about to be crucified. They go, why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Because it's up on the Mount of Olives. So he goes on top of the Mount of Olives. He's been talking about destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, all the judgment that's coming. And four disciples go up to him and they say to him, Master, tell us this, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus began teaching them. And you know some of those very familiar words. He says, don't be led astray. Many will come to say, and I am the Christ. You'll hear wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, uh, pestilences in various places. And I've heard preacher after preacher say, see, all this is going to do. Look at Russia and Ukraine. Look at China. Look at the pestilences. Look at COVID. Look at all this. It has nothing to do with Matthew 24. Do you understand that? has nothing to do with that. Don't be swept astray. Paul says, didn't you know I talked to you about these things? Why didn't you listen up? So if you're going to understand Matthew 24 and 25, trust me, you're going to have to understand these three principles to begin with, or you'll be all screwed up. I promise you that. Okay? Israel is in view, not the church. Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the church. She's not there. Israel's in view, not the church. Tribulation period, seven years long, is in view, not the church age, where we're living today. The second coming of Christ to earth is in view, not the rapture of the church. I've heard great, wonderful friends who are missiologists, and they mess this thing up so bad, I, I want to stand up sometimes and scream. Because you know what this says? It says, the end cannot come the end cannot come until the whole world has heard the gospel. And until the whole world, here's the gospel, whole world hasn't heard yet. Well, if the whole world hasn't heard yet, and he's talking about us living today, then that means Christ can't come back from his church. But the point is, Jesus isn't talking about the rapture. He's talking about the revelation to earth. Do you understand that? So the imminency of the rapture, there are no signs that precede the rapture. No signs whatsoever. They've been looking for it for 2,000 years. How much more should we look for it? And so you've got to understand. Now, notice what Jesus says in Matthew 24. In verse 15, he says this. And notice how he ties this together. How do we know that Daniel's 490 years are not historical back then? We've already said 483 are. Why isn't the 70th week also historical at Jesus' point of view? Notice what Jesus says. So, when you see the abomination of desolation, they hadn't seen it yet, but when you Jews living in the tribulation period see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, it's all that, let the reader understand if you're in Judea, get out of Judea, get out of Jerusalem, leave home immediately because wrath, persecution is coming like you've never known it before. So these are all the things that Jesus talked about, Daniel talked about, recorded in Matthew, and now Paul describes it in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, he says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who poses and proclaims himself to be God. 
Now, Jesus goes on to say in verse 21 of Matthew 24, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world. It's going to be like you've never seen on earth before. Let's close the message, deliverance. Got to close with some hope. How can Paul say, be comforted, be encouraged, comfort one another, etc.? With what we just looked at today? It's because the church will not enter or go through the tribulation period. Now, there's a lot of good, smart, brilliant scholars, love Christ, love the word of God, that don't agree with me, okay? I've got wonderful friends who do not agree with me, all right? <laughs> but as I tell them, with a little smile on my face, when we go up before the rapture, I'm going to look you right in the eye and say, I told you so. So, <laughs> First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath, not wrath, not a wrath, from the wrath to come. What wrath, Paul? The one you've been talking about, the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us to the wrath, definite article, but to attain deliverance, salvation through our Lord Jesus. Seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, What's he say to the church at Philadelphia? Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now we wrap it all together with a true story, and I'm done. I think if I mention the name Harry Truman, all of you have a picture in your mind or a thought. But the Harry Truman I'm thinking of isn't the 33rd president, but rather a, a hermit kind of a man who lived in a very unpretentious shack at Spirit Lake in the state of Washington. I can't believe it, it's been 42 years ago, 1980, when 2,000 residents had been evacuated from the area because they were talking about an imminent volcanic eruption. But Harry Truman was convinced he was safe in his little shack. He had lived there for over 50 of his 84 years. He'd heard these warnings of evacuation before. Nothing ever happened. Nothing ever will happen. But we know what happened. May 18th, 1980, the volcano erupted, and Harry Truman and his shack were completely obliterated and unaccounted for. When I think of Harry Truman, I think of this self-deceived elderly man thinking he was safe on safe ground. He had all kinds of warnings, but no one could persuade him out of his deception. And as devastating as that is, I think of the millions in our world, possibly some right here in our church building this morning who do not know the Lord. And if the rapture happened today, and it could, might not happen for a thousand years, could happen tonight, you'd be left behind. And we don't want that to happen to anybody. And we want to tell others, evacuate at the rapture, evacuate. Because there is a storm coming called the day of the Lord that this world has never seen even beginning the likes of. Father in heaven, we thank you above all that Jesus came the first time, rejected of men, cut off as Daniel says, but not for himself, but for us. And we shall celebrate that now as we take the bread and the cup. And we look forward to that 
soon coming of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.